pouring his heart out to God. He was a man that was under deep conviction, deep anguish for what had happened, and that led him to repentance. And by the way, this is a message for all of us. Please don't be polarized thinking this is just for fathers or just for men. Psalm 51 is a classic passage in Christianity that deals with confession, but not just confession, because it doesn't end there. He then, towards the end of the psalm, repents. And we see that this confession was not just sorrow over his sin, but a sorrow that resulted in a desire to change. And he asked God to change him. And we're going to read about this today. Before we go to Psalm 51, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13. But I'd like to take us to the Lord in prayer, if you would bow and pray along with me. 2 Samuel chapter 12 will be in. Father, we cannot, we dare not do this without you today. Lord, these are your words. We know your words impact with such power, Lord. You are the one who breathes life into our souls. You are the one that spoke this world into being. You are the one, because of this, whose very words so resonate in our hearts, even before we came to you, in repentance and faith, to become a child of God, to, to become saved, to become one through your grace, Lord, that has been now delivered from the penalty and the judgment of our sins. Lord, before even that, Lord, your word impacted. Today, Lord, I'm asking you to do it again. I'm asking you, Father, to revive us. I'm asking you to save sinners. Lord, please, in your name I ask, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, we begin reading. And David said unto Nathan, David is the author of Psalm 51. Obviously, God, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David penned those, these words we're getting ready, or we just quoted, actually. And David said unto Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. The servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? Here is a father who is deeply broken at the sickness of his child, but it's more than that. It's not that his child was sick. It's that God had said as judgment on the sin that you committed, I'm going to take your child. On judgment for the sin that you committed, I'm going to take your child. David is under immense guilt, shame, and very sober in this moment of his life. A father loses a child. 
Of course, this type of tragedy is bound to happen in a sinful and broken world, right? We've all known people that have lost people. Some of us know people that have lost children. You say, so this is a heartbreaking thing, but it is typical. But this is a little different. This is a man that's losing a child for the sole reason of the sin that he committed. His sin, the consequences and judgment of his sin falls on somebody else. And even though many times you and I would think that that's not what happens in our lives, it's merely because God did not send a man of God to our house to tell us so. Our sin has consequences. Here we just get to read specifically about one of them in one man's life. A little backstory to what had just happened here. A king, David, had abused his privilege as king. He stayed home when he should have been at war with the other soldiers, should have been leading his army to war. As he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, he views from the palace a woman bathing on the top of her residence. By the way, highly suspect, bathing out in plain sight. David gave in to this temptation, and you know the story. Many of you, he, he commits adultery with this woman, Bathsheba. And then David finds himself in the clutches of the consequences of his own sin, as now she finds out she's pregnant. What maybe in his mind was thinking he could keep this a secret, now was eventually going to be revealed by just the biology of how God created men and women. So in a shameful attempt to cover up his infidelity, his sin, he concocts a plan to send her husband, Uriah, to the front lines of the battle, and then to instruct his men to leave Uriah all by himself on the front lines so that he would die in battle, and, and this happened. They did this. They left him to die, and he, he died an honorable death on the front lines, fighting the king's war while the king was home. King David now comes to the rescue of this recently widowed woman and marries her. King David may have thought that maybe he'd be able to move on from this. He'd be able to kind of forget this ever happened. I will never do that again. I'm just going to move on. Life is as usual, but not so. God intervenes in David's life. God speaks to the prophet, the man of God. This is how God spoke back in these days. God spoke to the Nathan, the prophet, to go see King David. Nathan gains an audience with David. He shows up, and David, for whatever reason, is oblivious to why Nathan would be there. Nathan begins to share a story, to give an illustration with the end result of the famous confrontation that many of us have heard as he tells King David, Thou art the man. And David immediately falls, I don't know, conviction for the first time, conviction, more conviction, I don't know. But he responds immediately to this. He does not um, justify himself. We don't read that, even one verse of that, even one word of that. He does not uh, try to blame others. He does not try to uh, lie his way out of it. At this point in his life, he accepts God's confrontation and immediately confesses, confesses. Nathan said, thou art the man, and he begins to give him the message from God. God says, you've killed Uriah the Hittite. You've married his wife. And he says, God says, if you had wanted, 
Wives, I would have given them to you. If you had wanted power, I would have, I would have given you whatever you wanted. But because you've done this, the sword shall never depart from your house. I will raise up violence among your own family against you, and I will take the life of your child. And he did just that. And although we may look on this and say, wow, that's really harsh. Why would God do something like that? But if you'll turn that coin around and understand that God in his goodness did that to stop the progression of where David could have been if he continued down this road. And this is what the Lord does for us. We do not deserve, really what we deserve when we fall into temptation, when we follow the flesh, we deserve to be just plunged out on that road. Really, we deserve for God to say, you want to go that way? Go ahead. Follow that road and get to the end of it. And we would be fathers, we would be of all men most miserable. But God, in his goodness, as a good father that loves his children, disciplines, intervenes, and we see this happening here, brings us to our topic. Today, our topic is repentance. It's repentance, real repentance, true repentance. Not just being sorry for your sin, but turning and changing. Repentance is, uh, it says here, actually, I got these quotes out of our Seeking Him devotional. Repentance is turning from my will or my way to God's will and God's way. Repentance is turning from everything I know to be sin and towards God's best plan for my life. Repentance begins with humility. It involves specific honesty, requires a choice, and results in a change. Repentance is saying no to sin and self so that I can say yes to Christ and his vision and plan for my life. You know, history tells us that in, I think it was in the 1500s, 1517, um, you've heard of the 95 Thesis that Martin Luther nailed on the door of the Catholic Church. These theses, as I studied this, was a list of accusations and charges against the Roman Catholic leadership at the time, and Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic. That was, the, that was the major church, major religion at the time. And specifically, as I studied this, I found the 96 Theses were specifically, most of them about the, the um, fact of indulgences, where you could, you could buy forgiveness by giving money to the church. And there's a lot that goes into that. But what had happened is the church had become really a place where a form of religion had taken over. It was no longer true repentance from the heart. The first of these 95 statements, Martin Luther points that out, and he says this in um, number one out of 95. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. In other words, you cannot buy with some money your repentance over one thing. It has to come from the heart, and it's not just when a person becomes saved. It's, it's that continual repentance throughout our lives that happens until we stand before him face to face. As long as sin remains in us, Martin Luther says, repentance will always be necessary for the Christian to maintain a healthy walk with the Lord. You know, you and I might ask, why, why should I repent? I mean, nobody else around me seemingly is doing this. I mean, everywhere I go, my job, my family, whatever, I don't see people repenting. I don't see the results of that. Why do I want to go against the grain and repent and make this an active part of my life? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. You had to ask yourself that 
You know, whether you use the words or not, you had to be willing to do that when you came to Christ. It's no longer my way. I don't want my sin anymore. I want Jesus Christ. I want forgiveness. I want mercy. However you worded it, that was the spirit that you came in. And God promised to save you. And he did. That did not mean that that was the last time you ever repent. It was the beginning of a life of repentance. This is what Martin Luther meant when he said the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. One of repentance. We see this vividly in Psalm 51. Would you turn there this morning? Psalm 51. King David pours out his heart to the Lord. You can sense the anguish. You can sense the honesty. You can sense the responsibility that he feels in all of this. And we see as well the goodness of God. Such a clear uh, illustration, such a vivid description of a repentant sinner. I, I, I believe that after we read through this and pull these apart, you will not be able to ignore the presence or the absence of repentance in our own lives. You'll be able to tell one way or the other. Either you're willing to do this or you're not. We're just going to do an overview of this psalm. I encourage you to look at it more deeply and, and study it for yourself. There's just too many verses to do it detailed this morning, but I want to draw your attention to, to five quick things this morning about real repentance that we see in this psalm. Number one, we see that real repentance falls on the mercies of God. If you have a church bulletin this morning, you can open it up. You can take notes right in there. There's some fill in the blank, and you can space to write anything else you see in there inside the bulletin this morning. Repentance, real repentance, falls on the mercies of God. Look in verse number one, uh, reading from the King James Version. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. You know, did you know that repentance toward God is only as good as the God you're repenting toward? He throws himself on the mercies of God. As it were, spiritually, throwing himself at God's feet. Do with me as you would. But at the same time, calling into effect the mercies and the loving kindness of the God that he knew knowing that I deserve full well everything I'm getting, I'm throwing myself at your mercy. That's real repentance. He says this phrase, you, see, you catch in there, according to thy loving kindness. Oh, he's saying that God's attributes are worth leaning on. My loving kindness would accomplish much. He says that there's another phrase in there, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. He's, he's here, a, he's trusting in the abundant pool of mercy, the tender mercy. Such a beautiful word. Loving kindness, tender mercy to describe our God, even our God of holiness and judgment. He says, I know without the intervention, God, of your goodness, this would be pointless. I would be blind and lost in my own pride in my own sin. I, David says, I have nothing to bring to the table that would warrant another chance, but I'm throwing myself at the mercies of God. And he does this. Real repentance is willing to do that, whatever the consequences. Real repentance takes full responsibility. Number two, takes full responsibility. We see in verse number three that real repentance takes ownership. 
It doesn't try to blame our sin or say, well, yes, it was wrong, but if they hadn't done this, or if I hadn't been in this situation, or if I had had my devotions that day, or if I, whatever, we, it doesn't blame. Real repentance doesn't blame anybody else. It takes full ownership. He says in verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. It is all around me. I can't get away from it. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. God, I'm, I'm not blaming anybody else. I know my sin affected other people, but you're the one I sinned against. I'm repenting to you. I'm turning to you. He says that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. What was he saying right there? He's saying, God, please understand, I'm coming clean here. I will take whatever judgment comes to me. I'm throwing myself at your mercies. I'm throwing myself in, in the path of your loving kindness, but I take full responsibility. No blame, no justification. He says later on, again in verse 14, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. This, this man knew what he did. The death of his own child. This father felt the weight of his sins probably like many of us have not felt. And he says... Against thee and thee only have I sinned. God, you're the one I disobeyed. You are the one that I offended. So be clear when you judge. Please understand, I'm not trying to get out of this. It, it takes ownership. It, it reacts in honesty. He says in verse 5, um, real repentance you know, reacts honestly. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. The hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. I mean, he acknowledges, I, I got this honest. I understand I was born in this sin, but I'm not trying to get out of this. You want truth on the inside. No hypocrisy. You want me to see the way I really am. And God, I'm, I'm confessing, I'm acknowledging to you, I see my sin for what it is. I just call it what it is. I'm a sinner. I was born that way. I'm not going to justify it. And today I'm throwing myself at your mercy. Real repentance knows that discipline is deserved. You know, with, we're still in point number two, but it knows that I deserve it. He goes on in verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Oh, there's such vivid, vivid, vivid word pictures in here. Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop is not uh, hyssop, hyssop. I have no idea how to pronounce that, but it's one of those two. I imagine this is um, the word for a sort of absorbent plant that was in uh, the ancient days there. It's an absorbent plant. It was used in Exodus 12, 22. They would take the hyssop. Uh, I'm just going to say hyssop this morning. Hyssop, they would dip it in the blood. They would wipe it on the doorpost so the death angel, as it came through Egypt for that final plague, would not kill the firstborn in God's children's families, right? That's, that's how they applied the blood. They would dip it in the blood of some kind of a, a spongy type plant. It's also the same plant that was used as they dipped it in vinegar and gave it to the Lord on the cross. And he says here, purge me, cleanse me with hyssop. Purging is that idea of taking something abrasive, taking pressure and cleansing something to take something that I'm able to put force down and, and put pain and, and effort and force into cleaning the impurities out of something. He, he was not at all doing like what I would hope for 
when I would come to my father growing up in repentance. Because I can almost guarantee that every time I was thinking, if I do this, maybe he'll let me off easy. I don't see that here in David. You don't see any spirit of David trying to get God to let him off easy. Matter of fact, quite the opposite. He knows his discipline is reserved. At the same time, he is just throwing himself at the mercies and the loving kindness of a holy and loving God. In verse 8, just listen to the pictures here. In, or sorry, verse number 7, he goes on, he says, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Notice he did not say white as snow. What was he saying? Only you can cleanse me, yes, but only you can cleanse me the way I need to be cleansed. I am asking you for a supernatural cleansing that only you can give me. I am asking you to deliver me from the clutches of this sin, to purify me. Have you ever seen anything whiter than snow? I mean, you go on a, I know we don't see snow much down here, but you can look at it in pictures. Uh, just trust me, when you go on a mountain with snow on a sunny day, you have to put on sunglasses. It's so bright. Why? Because it is so white and so pure. I mean, God created that color. And he says, I want you to make me whiter than that. I know you can. I fall on your mercies. I am looking for cleansing, not for an escape route here. God, please cleanse me whiter than snow. He goes on in verse 8, he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken. He recognizes, God, I am, I am suffering here. I deserve it. You've broken these bones and it's killing me. It's killing me inside. Would you bring back the joy? Would you cleanse me so that I can get on the other side of this? Otherwise, it just it's, might as well just be over. I think, in a sense, he is fully saying, I can't take this anymore. I cannot take the guilt and the shame. I cannot take the weight of my sin. He throws himself at the mercies of God. This is real repentance. Real repentance, point number three, desires renewal from God. It's not just sorry as as we're seeing. Now, Now we begin to see the hinge change a little bit. As David now expresses his desire for renewal, in verse number 9, he says to God, Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He is now expressing a glimmer of hope. There is renewal behind this. Lord, as I, as I begin to acknowledge my sin, as I throw myself at your mercy, as I start to think about who you are, he begins to see a glimmer of hope. Maybe there is hope for me on the other side of this. Lord, if you would cleanse me, if you would renew me, if you would create something wonderful within me. Verse number nine, you're going to have to hide your face from my sin because it's despicable. I'm asking you to blot out, cover up my iniquities. And do something inside of me. Create in me a clean heart, Lord. Do something that only you can do. Take what has happened in my heart. Take what I've been born with, but has now turned into something despicable. Would you make it clean? Create something out of nothing. Would you renew a right spirit? Would you, would you bring my spirit back to the way it was, back when I stood up against Goliath? Back when 
King Saul came and laid in the cave right next to me in that dark cave when I could have taken his life, but I would not touch God's anointed. Would you bring back that spirit to me? Renew a right spirit in me. And he pleads, cast me not away from thy presence, Lord. Don't leave me alone. Don't leave me alone. That is the cry of a repentant father, of a repentant mother, of a young person. Lord, I can't stand it that your presence has left me. I can't stand it that you feel so far away. Would you cleanse me? I throw myself at your mercy. I'm not trying to get out of my sin. I'm not trying to reason it away. I need your cleansing. I know you can cleanse me. Please, do something wonderful in my life that only you can do. Number four, real repentance, as he goes on in verse 12, shows real evidence. If repentance is happening in our lives, it always shows evidence. It is not something we can just keep on the inside. You cannot go to somebody else and say, oh, I really, I really repented of that sin, but yet nobody sees any evidence of that whatsoever. That's not real repentance. It always has fruit. Verse number 12, he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Then, so after this, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. At first glance, it almost seems like David is making a deal here, but I don't believe if we look at the context, that is what is happening. He is acknowledging that, God, if you will do this, if you will restore me, if you'll cleanse me, if you'll bring back the right spirit within me, then, God, then, when I acknowledge my need for repentance and you do this work of repentance in my life, then, then, I'll teach transgressors thy ways. Then, my tongue will sing aloud of thy righteousness. Then my mouth will show forth thy praise. Yes, acknowledging that there's going to be a natural byproduct to this, but at the same time, I believe David is acknowledging that I dare not do these things in a fake manner. I dare not do these things with a sinful heart. He said in verse 7, thou desirest truth in the inward part. Now, you're not wanting me to be one way on the outside and another way on the inside. Real repentance creates integrity. It's the same, in and out. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Lord, I'm not joyful right now. Cleanse me. I throw myself at your mercies. I want the joy back. I need the joy back. Lord, I will. I know if you'll do this for me. I'll teach transgressors your ways. I will, uh, sinners will be converted to you. He said, my tongue will sing aloud of your praise. My mouth will show forth, show forth thy praise. Lastly, real repentance is what God really wants from us. Is it not easy for us, let me put this a different way. I believe it is so much easier for us to do than it is to be. So much easier. I mean, we've, some of us have gotten really good at it. We can put on this whole activity on the outside, and on the inside, it's killing us. On the inside, we're in turmoil. On the inside, we're struggling. 
But outside, we're putting on a pretty good face. Real repentance. God doesn't want those outward things. He wants what he does in our hearts to produce outward things. But the outward things without the inner heart, God doesn't delight in that. Matter of fact, I think we could go along with the church at Laodicea and acknowledge that God actually is disgusted by that. Say, well, it's the best I can do right now. The way I'm reading from Scripture, you're better off not doing anything. That's the way I read it. God does not want us being fake. Number five, real repentance is what God really wants. He says in verse 16, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou desirest not in burnt offering. This was very prevalent back then. This was the way they worshipped God. They brought their burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. So these next two verses he brings in a very Jewish flavor to this. So don't get lost in these words. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. God, bring us back as only you can to the place that we were before. Revive us. Renew that right spirit. Lord, we acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge our brokenness. We do not justify it. We do not avoid it. We do not run from it. We deserve whatever judgment you get. But I throw myself on your tender mercies, on your loving kindness. God, if you'll restore me, if you'll cleanse me, if you'll renew me, I will praise you. I know I will. I'll teach people about you. I'll share your ways with everybody that I can. And people will be saved. People will be converted. But God, I understand that sacrifices, I understand that all of these grand gestures that I try to do for you is not really what you want. What you want is a heart that produces these grand gestures. And then these grand gestures get reduced down to they're not really grand gestures anymore. They're the least that I can do. I don't really feel like I'm, I'm really going out there and doing something so magnanimous anymore because I realize what you've done in me and it is the least I can do. My time is yours. My life is yours. My money is yours. My talents are yours. It's the least I can do. God, this is what you want. He says a broken spirit and a contrite heart are what you want. Broken here is the word nephal. It means to break in pieces, literally. Contrite is the word daka in Hebrew. It means to be bruised or distressed, to be in a crushed state. Boy, this is not the picture in our American culture that people would have confidence and really look up to, right? Someone who is just bruised and broken in pieces. Someone who just lives in a state of being crushed. We won't find any self-help books promoting that, that's for sure. But God says, that's what I desire. That's what makes me happy. That's what pleases me when one of my creation comes to me broken and bruised and remains in that state. I can work with that. I can renew that person. I can restore that person. And by the way, it isn't a blessing to know that this this almost horrific psalm written by King David was not at the end of his life. He had much more life to live for God after this. God did wonderful things through this man. 
wonderful things for his kingdom and for his service. God here telling David at this last part of the psalm, the surrendered and submitted heart is what will make obedience to my laws actually something I'm pleased with. So we could actually be obeying God and his laws and it not be pleasing to him if our heart doesn't match up what we're doing on the outside. If we won't let go of the sin, but yet we want to do something at least, and God says, eh, forget the something, come back to the sin. You're just wasting your time over here. That doesn't please me. I don't even want it. As people honor me with their lips, he says in the New Testament, but their heart is far from me. As we look at this, this psalm of genuine repentance, as we seek out and seek our Lord in the, in the spirit of true revival, I would ask you this morning to bow your head and close your eyes. At this point, we would have what we call our invitation. It's just a time for you to consider. It's a time for you to respond. You don't have to go home to wait to repent. It is an act before you and God. I would ask you to ask yourself these questions this morning. Will you turn away from your own way? Will you do that this morning? Will you turn from your own way and start walking the way God wants you to walk? Will you give up on your sin? Will you give it up and put your faith in God? Whether whether you've never been saved and you need to be saved this morning, you need to repent for the first time, or whether you've gone down this path for a while and God has pointed his finger at you this morning, you are the man, you're the woman. That's the sin I'm talking about. Will you let go of that? Whatever it is that would pull you away from the Lord, will you let go of it and love him instead? Will you seek your own path forward or will you seek his path? That's the choice we have to make. God does not force us down that path. To force you would be to produce a fake love and that's not glorifying to God. And it doesn't do you any good either. Father, we love you this morning. We're, we're, this is a heavy, heavy topic, Lord. Lord, we look forward to next week as, as we look at the grace of God. But today, Father, to get to next week, we have to confess and be honest about our own sin. And if we're honest about it, that honesty produces a desire to repent. Else, Lord, if we don't repent, we didn't really see our sin the way you do. We're just fooling ourselves. Lord, do a work in our lives. Bring us to repentance this morning. We'll give you the glory. In your name I ask, amen.